0: Good morning, guys. My name is Maria, for those of you that I haven't met, and I am a long-standing intern here at Restored. Um, and um, I've been part of this community since April of 2020. And as a community, if you haven't been here, we've been making our way through the book of Romans chapter by chapter for almost a year now, and in a series that we're calling Gospel Depth. And last week, Rose Nicholas, one of our elders right here, he unpacked Royce is great. Unpack um, chapter 14 and the first half of Romans 15. And so today, we're going to look at the second half of chapter 15, verses 14 through 33. So if you, have a, if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there with me. And Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 14. So we are going to read the whole thing, but don't worry. It's a much shorter text than last week. Okay, are you guys ready? All right. My brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points, because of the grace given me by God. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God, and God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's spirit. And as a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. And my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation." But as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. And that is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you. But now I no longer have any work to do in these regions, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. For I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there. And once I have first enjoyed your company for a while, Right now, I'm traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints because Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor amongst the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased and indeed are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits then they are obligated to minister to them in material needs. So when I have finished this and safely delivered the funds to them, I will visit you on the way to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in prayers to God on my behalf. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints and that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. And may the God of peace be with all of you. Amen. That was a lot of text. And at this point, you might be wondering, why is this here? Basically, what we just read is a brief summary of what Paul's been up to and his plans for future ministry. He's basically telling this church in Rome that he's wanted to, for some time now, to come and visit them. But he hasn't been able to, right? Because he's been too busy preaching the gospel in many other places, which has kept delaying his trip to visit them. He gives them a summary of everywhere he's preached the gospel. It's a lot of places. And now, at the point of writing this, he's on his way to Jerusalem. But he's letting them know he still hopes to stop by and visit them in Rome when he's on his way to Spain. So basically, it's like we've been forwarded Paul's Expedia itinerary email. So what does it have to do with us? What could a third century travel itinerary for the Apostle Paul possibly have to do with us today? You might be asking yourself, is Maria announcing a restored church short-term mission trip to Spain? No, unfortunately, I am not. But while it would be easy to just write off this text as simply an outdated itinerary with nothing to learn from, I think that what we can take from this text is some beautiful insight into Paul's life. What we see in Paul is that he is living out his God given, God inspired calling. And he tells us exactly what that is in verse 20. So let's read verse 20 again. Paul says, My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. Paul had a firm grasp on the very thing that he was called to do on this earth. He understood his calling. And so this is what I want to talk about today. So before coming to San Diego, many of you know that I lived in India for over three years, working with a nonprofit throughout India's rural villages that focused on helping local leaders get the resources that they needed to help People bring to take the gospel to their villages and nearby villages. So, when I moved to India initially, it was just days after my 22nd birthday. And to a lot of you, that might seem really young. It kind of was. But <laughs> for me, it had been an almost six year journey from feeling initially called by God overseas long term and then actually moving to India with the intention of getting to stay for a long period of time. And this six year journey began one evening at a church where I came to faith. And the youth pastor, he got up to teach, and he said something along the lines of, there's actually more to God that I'm able to tell you, but I don't know how to tell you. Now, this caused me a bit of confusion because I'd only been following Jesus for about a year. So I didn't know where else to go for answers if the youth pastor didn't have them. But I had been around just long enough to hear about mission trips. So, compelled by this statement that there was more to God than I had yet been told, I got a hold of a computer and Googled mission trips. It was a successful Google search that ended with me signing up for a two-month mission trip, where I was told I would spend one month off an island off the north coast of Panama, and the second month throughout the Tabardi jungle in a nearby region. And if you've heard my story, which some of you here have, you know that on this trip a couple of really significant things happened for me, and today I want to talk to you about one of them. To start this mission trip off, we took a six-hour canoe ride into the Caribbean Sea out to a small island. Picture like thatched roof huts, open fires, the whole jungle vibe in the middle of the ocean. And one day on this trip, we're going to hut to hut, visiting, praying for people, doing the whole missionary thing. And we show up at a house. And when we arrive, there's a woman decked out in local tribal wear, carving a small wooden statue-like thing. And I thought for a moment that maybe it was a toy or a souvenir that she tried to sell us. But as we got talking to our translator, he explained that that was actually his her god for the day. So if her day went well, she would keep the statue. If her day didn't go well, she'd throw it away, carve a new one, and start again tomorrow. Again, I had only been a follower of Jesus for a very short time. My theology wasn't very developed or impressive by any means, but what I did know was that I had encountered a savior for myself who I had come to know, who loved me and heard me and knew me and saw me, and it was all the things that that wooden statue could not do for this woman. And so I went home after that trip and I began to learn about the three billion people in the world who, like this woman, might never hear the gospel or even meet a follower of Jesus in their lifetime unless someone goes to them in their context. And after learning that, I had decided I had found my calling. And as soon as I graduated from high school, I would move to the rural mountains of Nepal, live in a yurt, and translate the Bible into an unknown language. That never happened, but it did set me on a trajectory that years later, through a series of more short-term trips and what seemed like a lot of God-directed detours, I would eventually get connected to a team that I would end up joining and moving to India with in 2017. And the place I will, God willing, go back to sometime in the future. And so proclaiming the gospel amongst unreached people in a place like India is what I feel called to do. And it's the thing that motivates many of the major life choices I make like the one to stay here in San Diego for another year, to intern at this local church instead of getting a different job. It motivates the way I spend my time, the people I surround myself with, and the things that I choose to study and learn about. It's also a major part of the reason that I'm up here preaching today, because communicating, hopefully, clear (laughs) gospel truth is a part of my calling. And although not everyone here is called to move overseas, we are all called to something. It's not just Paul and I and a handful of other people. It is all of us. Now, you will notice that Paul, in his letter, he isn't shaming the Romans. He isn't like, you should only be doing what I'm doing. What are you doing? Be like me. Do what I do. Instead, Paul knows his calling, but he's also aware that not everyone has that same calling. We'll talk about that more later. But before we move on to quickly, this would also be a good time to ask, have you ever genuinely considered if something similar to, to Paul could be God's calling on your life? Have you considered the possibility that moving overseas or being in some type of vocational ministry role might be a part of God's call on your life? I know that may sound intimidating, but we shouldn't be afraid of God's calling for us no matter what it is because everything he calls us to, he calls us for our joy and for his joy. And all of the callings from God carry dignity and worth and purpose. Maybe he's called you to be a police officer who is simultaneously called to seek justice and walk humbly with God. Or maybe he's called you to be a full-time parent who faithfully disciples your kids as they grow up into adulthood and is able to model Christ-like parenting for the other parents around you. Or maybe he's called you to be a teacher who's called to create spaces of understanding and safety for children who might not have that elsewhere. In Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. From the very beginning, God created us to rule or to work as a way for us to partner with him in the transformation of our world. And our vocation is one way that this expresses itself in our life. But more on that later also. If you're here today and you have no idea what you're called to do, that is okay. Because today, I want to help you begin the process of discerning that and you don't even have to take a six-hour canoe ride into the middle of the ocean. Now, if you're here today and you already know what your calling is, your vocational calling is, please don't tune me out because what you'll see today is that though a vocation is a part of what you're called to, your calling actually begins before you commit to a vocation. And this actually brings me to my two points for today. We're called to two things. The first thing we're called to before anything else is a person. And the second thing we're then called to is a purpose. So again, my two points today are that we're called first to a person and second to a purpose. Right now, we're going to jump into point number one, that we're first called to a person. And this person that we're f- first called to, you might have already guessed it, is the person of Jesus. John three sixteen through 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is what God did to call us to himself. He gave and sent his own son into the world to save us. In order to set things right between God and us so that we could have eternal life. So then this begs the question, what exactly is eternal life? And if we jump forward to John 17, 3, it defines it for us. It says, now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So to call us to himself, God gave and sent his only son, Jesus, to us so that we could know God and be known by him. And this is incredible because every other religion is man trying to get to God, but Christianity is the only religion that teaches that God actually came to man. And he came to man so that we could know him and become like him, and this is part of the foundation of our spiritual life. That all of our life is motivated by the call to be with Jesus and then become like him. And the way we do this is by becoming a disciple of Jesus. So author and philosopher Dallas Willard defines a disciple as a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. A disciple is not a person who has things under control or knows a lot of things. Disciples are simply people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus, End quote. In other words, a disciple is someone who has their priorities well ordered out. Practically, we must think if Jesus went to such great lengths to have a relationship with us, then we should prioritize relationship with him. This means he is first priority. Before you are working for justice or a teacher or a parent, you belong to Jesus. When you make decisions, you process it through the lens of a disciple of Jesus. When you look at a budget, a schedule, you ask yourself, what does it look like to make Jesus a priority in these spaces and decisions? For example, let's say that a young guy is getting ready to marry the love of his life. He goes to great lengths to make his fiance feel loved. He spends an absurd amount of money on a wedding, throws the best party you've ever been to, like ever, and secures an amazing home for them as they plan a future together. He is head over heels for his bride-to-be. And now they're married, and she tells her husband that she actually thinks they don't really need to prioritize time with each other. So she refuses to put a set time on the calendar. She makes all of her other friendships a priority instead of him, and surprise, she decides she's actually into polyamory also, and she doesn't want a monogamous relationship And if he doesn't agree to an open relationship, she'll actually just be cheating on him. And she also has different financial goals. And last thing, she just wants to make sure that he understands that her job obviously comes first. But other than those things, she's like, you are a priority. Now, if you were this guy's friend, I think you would probably tell him, I don't know if she is worth this commitment. Like, I don't think she deserves you. Now in Jesus' case, he knows all of this, but he wants his bride anyways. He wants to be with her. So what does this have to do with discovering our calling? The bride was married, but she acted as though her husband wasn't a priority. Her marriage didn't give any shape to the rest of her life. If Jesus is a priority, it gives shape to the rest of our lives. It helps helps us to discern what roles we are called to in this life, what vocation, and how we live out those roles and vocation. Jesus may call you to be a businesswoman, but there are different ways of practicing business. Some of them them make Jesus look beautiful, and some of them are completely opposed to the way and the ethics of Jesus. So before you're a business person, or a parent, or a therapist, or a law enforcement officer, or a teacher, you are the beloved of Jesus. You are a disciple of Jesus. And walking in that truth should make noticeably, make you noticeably different from your colleagues who share the same profession. So your motivation, your effort and your goals should in some way be different from your colleagues or fellow parents, even if there's a shared goal like making a profit. If you're a Christian, you work unto the Lord, which means that there are certain lines you won't cross for a profit. So even though you have a shared goal, like making a profit with a colleague, the way you do it is different. We need to be the opposite of that selfish bride that we described earlier. Jesus should have the first slots in our schedule, not the leftovers. Jesus should have the first fruit of our finances, not the spare change or extra. Jesus should have your worship, your monogamous worship relationship with him, which means you don't cheat on him with idols by offering more of yourself to them than him. He is the priority. And faithfulness to Jesus should be the determining factor when we make decisions like who to marry, where to live, and what to watch. And the conversation around these things, like what jobs to to take, starts with, how does this impact my relationship to Jesus and his purposes, as opposed to the ultimate factor, always coming down to personal goals, happiness, comfort, or prestige. And I'm not saying that happiness or comfort shouldn't matter in our decision-making at all, it's just that there are always secondary factors to faithfulness to the way of Jesus. And if you want to be really sure about who or what is first priority in your life, ask a close friend. Ask your friend or spouse, when you look at my life, does it at least appear that Jesus is my priority? And if not, why not? This can be a really helpful thing because others can see things in our lives that we don't. Okay, now let's assume that we are pursuing Jesus and faithfulness to him. How do we flesh out specific faithfulness in our specific context? Like we aren't all vocational missionaries. So, we are all disciples of Jesus, expressing that relationship through specific vocations, families, jobs, relationships, and places. And this idea is actually my second point. My second point is that the next thing we're called to then is a purpose. Here's what I mean by purpose. So, theologian Frederick Buckner once said that the place God calls you to is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. Purpose happens when you are aware of who God has made you to be, what he has gifted you with, and you're using those gifts for God's kingdom. It's meaning and confidence in your place in God's story. And our search for purpose is much different than the way our culture, for example, finds itself. We don't need to eat, pray, love our way around the world. Trust me, I've tried it. Italian gelato, definitely amazing, but only so much you can do for your search for purpose. We aren't in it for just self-actualization, pleasure, or comfort. We aren't looking for worthiness to achieve things to prove that we matter or that we're important. We find all of those things, meaning, love, acceptance, self-worth, in God. Even Jesus, before he begins his his ministry, when he's getting baptized in the Jordan River, he hears a voice from the heavens saying, this is my son with whom I am well-pleased. Before Jesus had done anything, before he'd healed anyone or performed any miracles, he knew that his father was already pleased with him. He had a purpose. This was to be the savior of the world. But he lived out that purpose from a space of belovedness, not for belovedness. Like Jesus, we work from approval, not for approval. We work from an identity of being loved by God, not to convince God to love us. We don't do our jobs or parent for identity. We do them from identity. And then we offer our jobs and our families as worship to God, like Paul demonstrates in today's text. So check out the end of verse 16 again. He said, it's God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Everything that we do, we offer back to God as an acceptable offering or worship. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is good news. It means that nothing is meaningless. If it's lived for God because it all returns to him as worship. Now at this point you might be thinking Maria this all sounds great I'm so glad that I'm loved by God and that I get to work for approval not from approval but I still don't know what my work or my calling is. Don't worry the sermon is not over. So to help you discern your calling I want to talk about three factors that can help you identify your calling. They are passion, proficiency, and places. So the first one is passion. So to have a passion for something is to have a natural bent or inclination in its direction. Helpful questions to ask yourself are, what are you attracted to? What do you gravitate towards? What is it that just naturally captures your attention and your curiosity? Is there an issue in the world that moves you to action? Beginning with passion is choosing to pay attention to the things that God placed in you and created you to care about. Paul, for example, experienced a deep burden to preach to the Gentiles, to people who had no access to the gospel of Jesus. It was the passion that God placed in him specifically. Some of you have a passion towards teaching young kids, some or a passion for really good food, or towards social justice issues. And once you find these things that you are passionate about, it's important to also talk about the idea of calling projection. So one author says in one of his books that calling projection, it takes place whenever we begin to project our own unique gifts and calling upon everyone else as if our assignment should be their assignment and our strengths their strengths, end quote. The truth is that oftentimes the thing that you're passionate about is a thing that God's called you to. But sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that, one second, of thinking that everyone's called to it. And the problem with that is that when everyone has your calling, then all the other things get unfulfilled. So for example, you might be passionate about human trafficking or racial injustice or evangelism or abortion or emotional health, whatever it is, and those are all good, but if everyone does just one of those things then the other ones don't get done. If everyone is worried about racial injustice, then no one is working on human trafficking. And if everyone's working on human trafficking, then no one's dealing with poverty in developing nations. And if everyone's dealing with poverty in developing nations, then no one is thinking about evangelism. And if everyone is thinking about ending abortion, then no one is available to help people grow in emotional health. All of these things have dignity and worth and are actually things that you add to the church that you are a part of. You are the way that God is gonna fulfill that aspect of his church, meeting that need. That's often what, when we have that passion. A lot of times, our frustration with what we think others or the church should be doing are the things that God wants to use us in to add to the church. So if you decide to go to a different church where everyone's already passionate about the same things you are, you don't add anything to it because everyone there is already passionate about it. Another author says, if we want God-pleasing spirituality, We'll find our passion and gifts and go hard after them. But we'll stop short of projecting our gifts and calling on those God has assigned to a different task. And once you've discovered your God-given passions, you can move on to the second thing to help you identify your calling, which is your proficiencies. We have to be realistic about these. Our proficiencies or abilities are the things that we're naturally gifted at the question you're asking yourself is, what am I just good at doing? It doesn't have to be perfect, but it needs to be effective at some level. We have to be able to discern, am I actually good at this? And the people around us are helpful in this process. Do they see that I'm good at this? Do others affirm that they experience the good of this through me? For example, if you think your calling might be in administration or organization, but then every time you try to administrate or organize, things are worse off than when you started, (laughs) <laughs> um, might be a good idea to try something different. Um, similarly, if you have a passion for cooking, that's so great. But if every time you try to cook, you end up calling Paul Fam or ordering a pizza, then <laughs> being a chef might not be the best idea. Checking your proficiencies and being aware of your limitations will help you to narrow down the things that you might be called to. And once you narrow down the things that you are proficient at, you can begin to look at the third thing to identify your calling which is places. Once you've found some things that you're drawn to and that you're good at, you can begin to look at the places where you can actually work out your passions and giftings. Once you identify a place, you can begin to ask yourself, is this the right space for me? And if in your present circumstances, in your life right now, you're not seeing like any places or opportunities to work out your passions and giftings, this is a great place to exercise your faith and prayers by asking God to provide opportunities for you to test out those passions and proficiencies and gifts that he's placed inside of you. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. All of the things that make up who you are as an individual and what you are passionate about, they're not random or coincidental. God placed those things inside of you for a purpose. God isn't hiding your calling from you. He hasn't haphazardly thrown together the plan for your life. He prepared the good works for you in advance. Just like God prepared the people of Jerusalem and Illyricum in Spain for Paul to minister to, in the same way, God is intentional with his plan and purpose for you. Whether you're called to the public school system or a nonprofit sector, whether you're a stay-at-home parent or a small business owner, whether you're a wedding planner or a missionary to North Africa, God prepared that work in advance for you to do. In 1 Corinthians seven seventeen, Paul says, Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. Let me read that again. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. Most of you here, you already have a job or a career, even if it might not be your dream job. And some of you here might need to quit your job and do what you know that God is calling you to do but others of you need to keep doing exactly what you're doing when you were saved and do it well for the glory of God. Ashley Stroman, a member of our church, is a great example. When she was saved, she continued in her her same profession as a counselor and at first she had to covertly, pretty cool, integrate the gospel into her job and she would share the gospel with coworkers and she had a chance to even work with a few Christian students who wanted counseling from a gospel-centered perspective. And then when she began to work for Restored, still in her counseling profession, she was able to integrate the gospel more freely into her work. But what I want you to see is that though Ashley's relationship with Jesus changed, her profession did not. She just got to integrate the gospel where God had already placed her. Wherever you're at at in this journey of discovering your calling, whether you're completely convinced of it and living it out, or extremely scared to ask God for fear of what or where he might be calling you to. In the words of Paul in Ephesians three eighteen through 19, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And that it would be from that fullness and that knowledge of God that you would find the peace and the courage to follow Jesus wherever or to whoever he might call you. Amen.